as I was studying this passage this week and as I was preparing for, for this week's message, it had me thinking about when Hudson was born. And I know y'all are thinking like, man, every week this dude talks about his kids. Y'all, that's because like we have two crazy kids and so I got a lot of stories. So y'all just get to hear them. Like, and so anyway, I was thinking about when Hudson was born. And uh, there's something that happens with a firstborn child. And if you are a parent or even if your kids are grown and out of the house, you're, you're going to know what I'm talking about here. Um, there's something that happens. See, you go in to this pregnancy and you're excited about this new life that's about to come into this world and, and you're excited about everything that's to come with that new life and, and the thought of raising children and being a parent and, and there's joy built around that. And then in an instant, all of a sudden you have this new life and everything is different. Everything in one moment is changed. And, and moms tend to feel it more than dads really acutely. And it's this change of, I no longer get to live for me. All of a sudden, my, my hopes and my dreams and some of, some of my desires and genuinely, like, even our identities change the moment we bring a child into this world. And all of a sudden, it's no longer, oh, hey, you're Jenny. It's, oh, hey, you're Hudson's mom. Or all of a sudden, it, right? And now we start to, our, our, even our identity gets reshaped at the birth of a child. And, and it can be tough. It can be tough to have all of these things leading. Even if you're excited to be a mom, the tearing away of this old identity and the sewing together of the new, it can come with tears, and it can come with heartache, and it can come with hardship. Um, and ultimately, what I think any parent in the room would say is there is joy in the new identity, even if there's difficulty in the formation of that new identity. And what we're going to see today is that when we become a disciple of Jesus, we are given a new identity. You see, the call to discipleship is, is a call to the undoing of our former selves. It's the undoing of our old way of life and a rebuilding of us because we are totally made new. And so now Jesus would call us to new identities and new priorities and new lives that look completely different from the old. Paul kind of cap, uh, encapsulates this when he says, it is no longer I who live, but what? Some of y'all know this. It's Christ who lives in me. That is a call of, I am totally reborn with a brand new identity. I am no longer the old man, but I'm now made new. So here in our passage, we're going to be called to the total undoing of some of these things that have defined us before in our old lives. And we're going to be called to this new way of life and instead pursue living and looking like our Savior, Jesus. And so here's the main idea Paul has for us in this passage. Here's what he would have us say. Do not be defined by your old way of life, but by the new life you have in Christ. Do not be defined by the old man, but be defined by the new man who is spiritually connected to Jesus. That's what Paul would say to us this morning. Read the passage with me. Let's start in Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 5. Paul says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you too once walked when you were living in them. 
But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is neither Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And in this passage, Paul makes an argument, so he's going to break this down into two different sections. Paul's going to first make an appeal. He's going to ask us to do something. And after the appeal, then he's going to make an argument and give us the reason why he makes the appeal in the first place. So he's going to give us what to do and then why we should do it. And he starts with the appeal, and this is the appeal Paul makes. Put to death the practice of sinning. That's simply what covers the first section of this this whole text. Put to death the practice of sinning. Look back at verse 5. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, because on account of these, the wrath of God is coming, he says, and in these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. This is now in verse 8, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth, and do not lie to one another. So Paul starts out this whole section with the words, put to death what is earthly in you. And that's strong language, isn't it? Like when we think of putting something to death, we think of war and we think of murder and we think of like death, right? And and there is like a severity to using this word, this word death. And it's like, man, Paul, isn't that extreme? Like, can't we just say like, hey, just, just put it away. Just like, you know, separate yourself from the sin. Can't we just like, do we have to use like extreme language like that? Because that's, that's pretty heavy. But Paul is simply keeping in line with something that Jesus had said about death. You see, if you, if you remember walking through the Gospels, if you've been through the Gospel of Matthew, maybe you'll remember what Jesus said here in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus said, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and enter the hellfire. You see, Christ also used some extreme language about sin. And it goes to show the severity of what sin will do in our lives in the new man, right? And Jesus wasn't advocating, like, literally, hey, chop your hand off. He wasn't saying, if you have the propensity to steal, like, lop your hand off. Jesus was simply trying to get us to understand the severity of sin. And Paul gets it here, and we'll get there in a little bit, but Paul says it's on account of sin that the the wrath of God one day will come. That's the severity of sin. You see, God's wrath is poured out on sin, and we don't like to talk about wrath, right? We like to talk about the loving God who just sits in the rocking chair and, oh, you dirty sinner, that's okay, though. I'll love you anyway. That's the picture we like to form of God, but the reality is God is, is much more deep than that, and God is just as much as he is loving, and he has wrath for sin, but he also has grace for those who repent. But Paul wants us to capture this idea of the severity of sin. So he says, put it to death, and that's a command for you and I to keep. That's something you and I need to do. We need to put sin to death. And it it had me thinking about, like, the war with Russia and Ukraine. I remember early on uh, in this war, as Russia was invading Ukraine, it might have been just a couple of months in, there was a news article that Ukraine 
bombed one of their bridges. It's like, now hold up, wait a minute, Ukraine, like, that's your bridge. Why are you bombing your, like, Russia's supposed to take out your infrastructure, right? Like, why are you bombing your bridge? Well, you see, Ukraine bombed this bridge in eastern Ukraine because Russia had invaded from the east and they were marching toward Kiev, the capital of Ukraine. And that bridge was a key access pathway for Russia to get from the east to Kiev. So if they wanted to keep Russia out of their capital, if they wanted to stop the advance of their enemy, they had to bomb their own bridge. That's the idea in place here, right? Like, man, this is going to hurt. This is part of our infrastructure. But we got to bomb this bridge because if we don't, the enemy will advance. And here in Colossians, Paul is saying we need to do something about sin in our lives. See, we're to put off this old way of life that is connected to death. And so, so we need to bomb the access pathways of sin into our lives. And we need to put that sin to death. And you see, do it early. Do it early. Because the longer we let sin fester in our hearts and in our minds the deeper its roots grow into our lives. See, the longer Ukraine would have waited to bomb the bridge, the farther Russia would have gotten into the country. And it could have been the undoing of their country. And Paul says we need, we need to treat several sins pretty severely like this. And Paul's going to address sexual sin and anger. And we're going to address them in the order that Paul addresses them here. Look back at our text Here Paul says, put to death what is earthly in you. And he gives a list of five things that have to do with sexual sin. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Paul starts with an outward action and then he goes to the motive of the heart. He starts with with sexual impurity. That that, uh, involves our actions of of sexual sin. But then he goes deeper and he, he gets us to understand like, hey, it's deeper than just your actions. Sin is not only what you do, it's what festers in your heart and it's what infests your mind and it's what takes over. You see, long before sin ever winds up in our actions, sin has taken root in our hearts. And so Paul is covering all these facets of sexual sin. And y'all, we come to verses like this and most Christians start to think, man, it's good Paul wrote this because, man, we're in the middle of like a sexual revolution in our country, aren't we? Like everybody, Christian or non-Christian, recognizes there, there is a sexual revolution going on in our country. And let me give you one word that, that defines this sexual revolution that's taking place. It's identity. It's identity. What drives this sexual revolution is is I I have my personal truth and I want to define myself a certain way and that should get to show up in my sexuality. And honestly, the world right now treats our sexual identity as the most core part of our identity. And so if you make an attack on that sexual identity, you've actually attacked the core of who I am. It's, It's not just part of me. It is the real, the tangible, and the fullness of who I am. That is the identity right now, is that my sexuality is what identifies me. And so anytime you talk about sexuality, you're automatically talking about the whole of the person. And it shows up, man, you, if, if, you, if you were born one way but you feel another, 
Like, let your truth be real to you, and, and so live that truth, and that can be your new identity. And it doesn't matter where, where you go with that, but that's, that's what's defining the sexual revolution of our world now. And so, Christians, man, we come to this verse, and we think, oh, yeah, get him, God. All right, yeah, and then we, then we pick this thing up the sword of the Lord, and we start slashing at the world. And how dare you identify like this? And how dare you come with this sexual revolution? And how dare you do this? And we start swinging this thing and making cuts and slices at people, right? The world or the church has done a bang-up job of slashing at the world with the Word of God and browbeating the world with the Word of God, haven't we? And it's caused a lot of church baggage in the world, and it's caused a lot of church hurt. People think, man, the church is nothing but hate. And it's nothing but hate because it's attacking the core of my identity, which is my sexuality. Y'all, but look at this. Look at this. We get it backwards. Look back at verse 5. Paul says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in who? Say aloud. What is earthly in you? Paul didn't write this passage to the world. Paul didn't write this passage to a bunch of people who don't know Jesus. Paul didn't write this passage to a bunch of people who had not professed faith in Christ and said, I am identifying with you, Jesus. He wrote this passage to Christians. And so, how can you expect the world to live any differently than they do if they don't know Jesus? Are you surprised at the things the people of the world do? Are you offended by the world? Paul didn't write this so we would be offended by the world and start taking pop shots at the world so we could load our biblical gun and start taking shots at people and the core of their identity. He wrote this to believers to say, you are identified now with Jesus. That is your new identity, and this stuff has no place in you. You see, there is a, there is a biblical definition of sexuality, and as believers, we are called to live according to God's perfect plan and purpose about sexuality. God created the male and female, and so we as believers affirm God created two genders. We as believers are to affirm that sexual intimacy is to take place within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. That's what the Bible affirms. I don't get to dictate what the Bible says. The Bible says what it says. And Paul is saying, live according to scriptures, to God's definition of sexuality. I write this to you, believers in Jesus, because this stuff has no place amongst you. And then sometimes we take this and we turn this against the world. And y'all, I'm not saying we affirm the decisions of the people of this world. I'm not saying that we encourage them and the things they do and the things they proffer is truth. But what I'm saying is this one is for us. This one's for us. And so let's live according to these things. Because Christ's desire is to purify his body. It's his desire for us to look more and more like him and be living more and more in his, in his image. But y'all, let's be truthful. Especially in regards to sexual sin, we struggle to acknowledge it exists in the church, don't we? We just believe the best about everybody. Oh, nobody, nobody, close, nobody close to me is dealing with sexual sin or sexual idolatry. Nobody, nobody close to me is walking through. No, we got, we got the best church, right? Like, no, nobody in here is walking through that. I remember there was a study done a long time ago. Um, 
And uh, a question was asked of pastors, and they asked them, well, how many people in your church do you think deal with sexual sin in your church? And they were way low, something like 20%, maybe 10%. And then they uh, did an anonymous survey of church congregations in many of these same congregations, and the numbers were astronomically higher. But you see, something about sexual sin is it's isolating, isn't it? We believe the lie that I am the only one. And then we feel shame because I'm the only one dealing with sexual sin. I am the only one walking through the mire and the muck. And it isolates us and it causes shame. And all of a sudden now we can't talk about it. The more we don't talk about it, the more we come to believe one another that, man, it just doesn't take root in the church. Sexual sin is alive and well in the church. And it's because we're still human. And we still battle the things of the flesh. But man, it feels isolating, doesn't it? We're slow to acknowledge it because we think, man, didn't Christ die for that? Like, of course nobody in this church, because Christ died so, so that we would be separated from our sins. So everybody in this church must be separated from their sin. Let, let me share it to you this way. Christ's death separated you from the penalty of sin. But because you still exist in the flesh in this world, there is a daily struggle with the power of sin. Christ's death broke the power of sin and that we no longer have to be slaves to sin, but it takes us pursuing him and it takes action on our part and the power of the Holy Spirit when we are pursuing Jesus instead of pursuing the sin will empower us to overcome it. But we still struggle with it. Sometimes we elevate some sexual sins more than others, don't we? The church has done a bang-up job of elevating same-sex attraction over any other, like, well, you know, adultery or uh, pornography or whatever else this can be, right? Like, the, other, the, the first one's the worst, right? Um, it's not what the Scripture would say to us. The Scripture would say, my adultery would be just as severe as any other form of sexual sin that occurs. There's no levels it's all an offense against God's design for sexuality between a husband and a wife and a man and a woman. So sexual immorality, the word that Paul uses there, it speaks of the act, the things we do to actually act upon what has taken root in our hearts and our minds. But then Paul goes deeper in his exploration of this. Put to death the sexual immorality, the impurity the passion, the evil desire, and the covetousness. See, impurity, passion, and evil desire, those things speak of the mind. All sexual sin starts first in the heart and the mind. You see, no sexual sin just happens one day. It doesn't just happen. You don't just one day, just all of a sudden, act on a sexual desire outside of God's perfect plan and biblical definition of human sexuality. It doesn't just happen. See, long before that happened, sin took root in your heart and in your mind, like I've been saying. And so sin that's expressed in our actions first takes roots in our hearts, and Paul defines that as our covetousness, right? And we tend to think of coveting as, as stealing, right? That's how we tend to define that word, but here, Paul uses it towards sexual sin, and it's no different. The act of coveting is simply wanting that which you don't have or can't have. And by God's definition, we shouldn't have and can't have 
sexual intimacy with somebody other than our spouse. And so coveting in the heart is the desire after someone else that God has not designed for you. That was David's ultimate sin, wasn't it? King David, back in Israel. King David's sin was that he despised the blessing that the Lord had given him and the wives he had given him, and he instead coveted the blessings that God had withheld. (laughs) It didn't just happen with King David. It happens with us too. Paul says it takes root and it starts to fester. It starts to fester in the hearts. And when we let it go out of control in our hearts, that's when it starts to build roots up to our minds and we start to think about, man, what could it be like to fulfill these desires? What could it be like to fulfill this thing that my heart is coveting after? We start to think, how can I actually get it? And it's the intentions and the thoughts of the mind. And if it's not put to death there, ultimately it works out in our actions and the things we do. And then Paul says this at the end of verse 5. He says this is covetousness. And what does he say covetousness is? It's idolatry. What is idolatry other than giving something in our lives the significance that only God deserves? That's what idolatry is. Taking something else in our lives and saying, I value that more than I value God. I value this thing in my heart and in my mind more than I will value God's declaration for a good and perfect and ordered sexuality. And so that's idolatry. We all these things to fester in our hearts that wind up in our actions. And that's the severity of it. And idolatry is the very reason the wrath of God is coming. Because mankind rejects God and instead pursues our desires, thinking we can do it better than God. And Paul here, when he says, back in verse 6, he says this, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. He's not actually saying the Colossians are in danger of the wrath of God. Again, when Christ died, he died to separate believers from the penalty of God. Nobody, if you have placed your faith in Jesus and submitted your life under his lordship and his rule, you are separated from the penalty of God. Therefore, you are never an object of God's wrath. You are instead an object of God's grace. So Paul isn't saying that you will receive God's wrath if this still exists in your life, believer. What he's saying here is why would you identify with something that brings God's wrath when you've been separated from that and brought into union with Christ? He's saying you have a new identity. Why would you do things in keeping with your old identity? It just doesn't make sense. Paul is making a logical argument. How can believers who have said, I submit to Jesus, do things in key, that are in keeping with not in submission? Why would you participate in something contrary to your own nature? That's what he says. And all of this is why Paul is so forceful in his language. Put to death what is earthly in you. Because we cannot be identified in the same way as the old man was identified. Paul runs into this verse, starting in Colossians 3, chapter 1. Consider this new identity, right? We said the core of the sexual revolution right now is all about identity. Well, look at Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, you are identified with the resurrection of Jesus, then seek the things that are above 
and not the things that are on earth. And he says later in verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. He's again making a statement of identity. He's saying you have a new identity and that identity is found in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in your new identity, put to death the old identity. Bomb the bridges. I recognize that in a, a church of we tend to run 43 on a Sunday. That there are people in our church that struggle with sexual sin. I'm not blind to that reality. <clears throat> so are you struggling with sexual sin? I, I have two things for you to do. There's two things you got to do. The first is get help. Don't fight the battle alone. You don't have to fight alone. There is no shame. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus takes away the shame of the sinner and instead gives us righteousness. There is no shame. Get help. Let somebody walk that battle with you. The enemy will lie and your flesh will lie. I am the only one. People are going to judge me. How can I belong to the church if I'm still doing these kinds of things? Those are lies that stop us from getting the help we need to overcome the sin in our lives. So get, get help. You're not the only one. Confess to somebody. Pull a brother aside. I would be happy to walk through sexual sin with you if you are struggling with it. I would love to care for your soul in that way, and we have others in our church that would love to do the same with you. But bring a mature believer alongside you. Second is take action. Go to the extreme and bomb the bridges in your life. Does your phone give you access to things you shouldn't be looking at? Flip phones are still a thing. That means you should get a flip phone. Does that sound extreme? You're like, but I like to text. They can text. It stinks. It'll be painful. But that's the undoing of the old self and going to the new self. Get yourself a flip phone. Get rid of the phone that gives you access to the stuff you shouldn't be looking at. Bomb the bridge. It is that extreme. I'm telling you, it's that extreme. Do you read books? We don't talk enough about this. Do you read books? They call them romance novels. Y'all, those aren't romance novels. Do you read books that build fantasies in your head that your spouse can never live up to you? Do you read books that build fantasies in your head that cause images in your mind and your thoughts about people other than your spouse. Bomb the bridges. Get rid of the books. Do you have a relationship in your life that drives improper thoughts and intentions in your mind and your heart? Sever the relationship. It is that extreme. Bomb the bridges. There are things we can do to overcome, and by the power of the Spirit, you will be successful, but there's practical actions that we have to take. And I'm here to tell y'all, as, as a paramedic for a long time and understanding the chemistry of the brain, there is a spiritual side of the warfare of sexual sin. There is also a chemical side that is more powerful than you would recognize. I'm going to sidetrack here. I don't have this in my notes, but I'm just going to, it's, it's so powerful to me. Um, dopamine is a chemical in your brain. And dopamine is the happy chemical in your brain. It's what gives you pleasure. And when we look at images and we act on our 
our sexual idolatry, it releases a dopamine high in your brain. That dopamine high is stronger than the high you can get from heroin. It is that powerful of a chemical release. So think about how hard it is to detox from heroin. That's how difficult it can be to get rid of sexual sin in your life. That's why I say don't do it alone. Back in, earlier in chapter 3, Paul gives us another solution. Verse 2, set your minds on the things that are above, he says. Set your mind on Christ Jesus. The more we think about our sin, the more our sin drags us down. The more we think about our sin, the more it's all-encompassing in our thoughts. The more we think about our sin, the more it takes roots in our hearts. He's saying, stop looking at the things of this world. Stop fixing your eyes on the problem and fix your eyes on the solution, which is Jesus Christ and the grace of God that overcomes. So get help. Fix your eyes on Jesus and bomb the bridges. These are the things you need to do. Quickly, Paul says this next. He says, put off the malice and the hatred in your heart. This is the other set of sins that Paul talks about. Look back at verse 8. He says, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Paul uses the language. He says, put off. This is the idea in the original language. It had the idea of taking off old and filthy clothes and putting on new clothes. And so I'm going to assume all y'all in here, like, change your socks this morning, right? I'm, I'm just going to assume y'all, like, got some Sunday socks. You put on the good socks. They ain't got no holes in them. And, like, you're doing all right, right? Like, every day, do y'all put on new socks or do you wear the old filthy socks, the ones that stink that you wore at the gym yesterday? What Paul is saying is take off the old stinky clothes of sin, of anger, of wrath, of malice, of slander, and obscene talk. These are the old filthy rags of sin that do not talk to the, or, uh, ha- have hold on the believer anymore. They don't define us. He's saying instead, put on the white robe of righteousness that Christ has given you and take off those old filthy rags. That's what he's saying here. He talks about anger. That's an attitude of the heart. Anger is an attitude of the heart. Y'all, sometimes we see somebody out in public maybe blowing up explosive anger, um, we think, man, that person's angry, right? They're not angry because they blew up. That person blew up because they have the natural posture and disposition of anger that is seated in their heart. See, we get it backwards in our world. People in situations don't make us angry. They just give us targets to focus our anger on because we were angry to begin with. Anger is a posture of the heart. It's a position that takes root, and I'm just ready to respond with wrath and with malice. You see, those are the actions. Wrath and malice are the actions of the angry heart. So Paul starts with with anger, which is this attitude of the heart. And the general disposition of the angry person is wrath and malice. And those are the outward expressions of the anger. Those are the morally bankrupt explosions of anger that are buried deep within our hearts. See, when things don't go our way, when somebody makes us upset, we're just ready to light the fuse. Y'all, I'm going <laughs> to, I'll confess to you this morning. As I was wrestling with this passage all week, normally during the course of my week, my prayers go something like this. Lord, 
let what I'm about to preach first have an effect in my life before it has an effect in their lives. I want to be impacted by this before I come and bring it to you because I want it to be real to me before I ask you to have it real to you. That's a dangerous prayer when you're talking about anger. Because, of course, some of y'all, like, some of y'all know uh, Jen had surgery this week. And uh, so Friday, she goes in, she has surgery, she's down for the count. Now, the last couple of days, the kids know there is only one adult and two kids. And y'all know what they do? They get crazier than normal. And so I'm sitting here Friday and Saturday, and I'm like about blowing up like, are you kidding me? What is going on with my kids? Y'all are ridiculous. And it was, they didn't make me angry. There was a posture in my heart that was ready to be angry, and my kids simply got to be the target the last couple of days. That just took some repentance from me. And as soon as I realized, it, oh, I prayed the prayer. Thank you, Lord, for letting it do a work in me. Man, that requires repentance. Y'all see, even as a pastor, I'm not immune from the effects of sin because just like you, I still live in the flesh. Sometimes I adopt that angry posture of the heart, and it's just a matter of the right person walking in and doing the wrong thing, and they just get to be my target. Paul says that has no place in the community of believers. That has no place in the life of the believer. You received grace upon grace from your Lord. We read about passages of grace this morning from the microphone. Scripture is filled with the accounts of God's grace. And he's called us to be people who issue the same grace that he's given us. Paul then goes on. You see, wrath and malice are our actions towards others of anger. And he talks about slander. And the last one he says there in that list obscene talk. That can also be translated abusive speech. Y'all, another way that anger shows up in our lives is by the slandering of other people, is by lies about others to malign them to other people, which is also gossip, isn't it? These are ways that the angry heart can show up. And, and you know what divides a community quicker than just about anything else? Slander and gossip. We gotta, we gotta put these things to death in the body of Christ. Abusive speech, that's actually the intent to cause harm with your words. The newfangled word for it is gaslighting. Gaslighting others, convincing them of how horrible they are, tearing them down to nothing. I heard this said the other day and I appreciated it and it, it just... Um, as a parent, I just always think about my kids, and I saw this, uh, I think it was on Facebook the other day, and you know when you use abusive speech towards your children, they don't love you less, they simply love themselves less. That's the power our words have over our kids, and not just our kids, but the people whose lives we have influence in. Do you have influence on somebody else's life? Your abusive speech won't necessarily cause them to love you less, but it will cause them to love themselves less. And when you use abusive speech and slander towards others, you actually malign the image of God that he wove into them when he created them. See, the image of God is woven into the fabric of every person who walks the face of this earth. And so to use our speech to tear them down, we're tearing down the image of God that he wove into them. Paul would say, put that practice 
to death. And why? Why is it so concerning with Paul? Paul talks about two things. Sexual sin, which was certainly rampant then, and we can say it still infects the church today, but why is anger the second one he chooses? And I'm just guessing at a motive here, but I think about Jesus' words, and maybe Paul was thinking about these words, and he wrote this too. Because Jesus, in the Gospel of John 13, verse 35, said this, by, all, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You see, if the people of God show the world a picture of abusive speech and slander and gossip and, and abusing one another with our words and acting out of anger, if that's the picture we show the world, we simply reflect the, to, back to the world an image that they already embrace. We don't show them new life in Christ and a community of God. We don't show them the grace and the love and the mercy of Jesus. And this is what Jesus says. All people will know that you are my disciples, not if you pick this book up and, and carry it under your arm 365 days a week. That's not what he says. He doesn't say all people will know you are my disciples if you walk up and you instantly say, hey, I love Jesus when you shake a hand. That's not what he says. He says all people will know that you belong to me if you have love and you care for one another. And what Paul is identifying is the exact opposite of what Jesus would have for his people. So if our churches are defined by anger, wrath, malice, and slander, then we just show the world a microcosm of itself, not the love of Christ. That's why it was big to Paul. Then Paul makes the argument. This is his argument. Why? Why do we need to work on these things? Why do we need to put these sins to death? It's because you are being made new in Christ to live as his body. Look at the last couple of verses, starting in verse 9 with me. Paul says this, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. The first reason that he says we need to put to death these sins within us is because we are being made into a new creation. Theologian R.C.H. Lenski said this a long time ago, the old man is not converted, he cannot be. He is not renewed, he cannot be. He can only be replaced by the new man. See, when we are separated from our sin, Paul says this matters because we are not simply reformed. We are not center, sinner with an addition of saint, and now we are the sum of this. We are not an equation of addition. You see, the old man has been done away with, totally gone, put to death. That's what Paul says earlier, right, in, in chapter 3. He says, for you have died to that old way of life, and your new life is hidden with Jesus. You haven't simply been reformed. You're not just made a little better. You are now union with Christ and separated from that old way of life. You're not just a reformed version of your older self, but you've been regenerated by the power of Christ. And your old sin-bound life has been put to death. It's been buried with Christ. And now in Christ you have a new life. So consider that old life. Actually, think about it, y'all. Sin always made big promises, didn't it? Sin always makes 
big promises about how good it's going to be, how great it's going to feel, how, how much better you, you know what, just let loose in your anger because you're going to feel better once you get it all out. Just let it fly because you're going to feel great. Sin makes a lot of promises to us about how great it's going to be, but it never delivers. And in the end, all we feel is guilt and shame. And how can my Jesus love me when I behave like this? Paul says that old way of life has been put to death. So don't return again to the image of the prisoner bound by the chains of sin, but instead be conformed to the image of your Savior who wins the freedom of the captives. That's what Paul says. That's the why. Think about this. From the vast ocean of the knowledge of Christ flows the river of holy living. How do we separate ourselves from sin? By fixing our eyes on Jesus and coming to know him more and more as he has revealed himself in this word. Paul spent the first two chapters of Colossians talking about theology. And for Paul, theology isn't something that's just stuck in your brain. Theology is something that shows up in your actions. When you think more and more on who the realities of your Savior are or is, that should have impact on how you live your life. So from that vast ocean of knowledge flow the rivers of holy living. Know your Savior and fix your eyes on Him. This is the other reason he gives. Because you're a new community and being built into the body of Christ for His glory in this world. Paul goes on to describe this this community. Look back at verse uh, 11. He says, here in this body of Christ, there is neither Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all in all. Paul is, Paul is outlining a, a group of people that now make up a body of Christ, and, and consider the people that are in this group. There's Jews and Gentiles. Y'all, Jews would not walk into a Gentile's home back in this day. There was such hatred, they wouldn't even be caught dead in a Gentile home. Not only that, they wouldn't eat food prepared by a Gentile. If they were walking through the marketplace and people were selling food, if the only person selling food was a Gentile, a Jew would rather starve. They're saying, I ain't got no dealings with the Gentiles. There was hatred between these two groups of people. And it was reciprocated. The Gentiles had just as much anger and wrath against the Jews as the Jews had towards them. See, the Greeks were proud and educated. They were often eloquent people who were marked, at least in their minds, by civility and honor and good living. That's who Greeks would have thought themselves to be. And then think about barbarians. Barbarians That was an epithet invented by the Greeks. It was derogatory towards people who spoke stuttering languages and didn't live in high society and didn't attain knowledge like the Greeks had attained. And so they're saying, here there's there's the Greeks and the barbarians, and y'all, they would have hated one another too. The Greeks would have looked down on those, those simple, dumb barbarians. And there's the Scythians who everybody hated. They were hated and feared at the same time. The the Scythians were a nomadic people that would roam around invading different countries and just taking them over and wiping them clean. They didn't care men, women, and children. They killed anybody and everybody they came into contact with. And the things they did aren't even appropriate to talk about on a Sunday morning. The Scythians were hated and they were feared. And they were so powerful at one time they were rumored to like control all of Asia. 
They were hated and feared. Nobody in this group would have liked them. This should have been a divided group of people. They had every reason to hate one another. But instead, those who are divided in the flesh are united in Christ. So what Paul is saying here is there's a lot of reasons you could have been divided. And there's a lot of anger and wrath and abuse that could have been between you. But in Christ, in Christ you're united as the body of Jesus. How can you behave and do these things towards one another as the united body of Christ. That's how you would have behaved before when you hated one another. But now you're united in Jesus. See, we're, we're no longer a people that are divided or separated by race or gender or social status or occupation. That's true even today. If you've placed in your faith in Christ, you are now a part of the united body of Christ. We're united under the head, which is Jesus. And the goal of the body is to tenderly and lovingly care for itself, to bind up wounds, not cause them. So to allow the practice of sin to divide us and to tear one another down with abuses, that's to rip the body of Christ limb from limb, is what Paul would say. And that can't ever be. So why do we put to death the practice of sinning in our lives? Because we've been made new in Christ. We've been given a new identity. And because we are united as the body of Christ to live under the head which is him. And in Christ, we have a new aim and a new purpose, and that's to pursue Jesus together. So this is what Paul says out of this passage this morning. Do not be defined by your old way of life, but by the new life you have in Christ. It's a difficult thing to be undone by Christ, isn't it? It's a difficult thing to go from the old man to the new man, the old woman to the new woman, and to be undone in what has captivated your identity for so long. And the putting off of our old attitudes and habits and the patterns that we have in life, man, it can feel like we're losing part of our identity, can't it? And it's painful. And often... Often that undoing comes with tears and heartaches, and sometimes the sparks fly, but it's what we're called to do. And the joy is you don't have to face it alone, but you have a body of believers that would surround you and care for you and help you work through the undoing of Christ as you put off and put to death the sins of the old man and take up the new life that's in Christ. So reach out. Don't struggle in silence. Don't struggle in isolation. But reach out for help. It's a fitting sermon for today because on the first Sunday of every month we take communion. So in this, these final few moments we're actually going to turn to the cross of Christ where the grace of Jesus overcomes our bondage to sin.